Silo, and welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silo. Thank you for joining me once again. Thank you for your support of all my recent episodes. I wanted to turn a corner today. I'm going to do an episode about a movie that I haven't done on the podcast, and I'm not going to do the movie in the way that I tend to do movies here on the podcast, but I do want to do a version of my episode's where I run through all of an actor's scenes in a specific movie. And the actor is Philip Seymour Hoffman. And the movie is Charlie Wilson's War. Now, I recently rewatched this film, which is eminently watchable every time it's on. I don't think it's a good movie, but it's an example of a movie where there is a fantastic performance in the middle of an otherwise kind of muddled and messed up Hollywood, Hollywoodification of, of an incredibly complicated story that is essentially about U.S. foreign policy, the way Congress works, the way money in politics works, the role that the U.S. plays in attempting to build democracies and what happens when we abdicate those wartime responsibilities, fail to win hearts and minds, create vacuums where bad actors, and I'm speaking politically, mind you, can fill vacuums created by foreign policy efforts. So these are all very thorny, weighty, complicated issues, of course. Now, we're not talking about a film that's a Michael Mann-esque approach to those topics where it's very serious, We're talking a movie directed by Mike Nichols that stars Tom Hanks and Julia Roberts and bizarrely kind of breezily tries to cover all of that stuff. As I said, it's very watchable because of the quality of the screen quality of actors like Tom Hanks, who does turn in a very, I don't want to say very, I think he turns in a nuanced portrayal of Charlie Wilson, who's a real person, as as are most of the other primary protagonists in the film, including the CIA officer uh, portrayed by Philip Seymour Hoffman, Gust Avrakados. Charlie Wilson was a real congressman. Um, who I think Hanks admirably portrays with all of the contradictions inherent in Charlie Wilson as a person and as a congressman. He was a heavy drinker, womanizer, political player of minor repute who ended up playing an important role in the funding of the Afghan Mujahideen movement during the Soviet-Afghan war from basically the 80s, 79 to 89. The movie was directed by Mike Nichols, as I said. It's actually his final film, and it's written by Aaron Sorkin. So hmm, storm clouds appear on the horizon right there if you're a regular follower of the podcast. It includes, in addition to Hanks, Roberts, Philip Seymour Hoffman, it has Amy Adams, Ned Beatty has a supporting role, and a couple other people that we'll mention as we go along. So I'm not going into detail about the movie per se, because you've probably seen it. You might enjoy it. It's 
a movie that is a peculiar aspect of Hollywood reality, which is, let's be realistic here. I'm not entering into politics to point these things out, but this is a movie that is entirely produced by liberals, starring public liberals. Uh, Participant Media is one of the production companies, Tom Hanks, Julie Roberts. And it's wholly about the U.S. waging war by proxy with the Russians. And in the failure, somewhat it's about the failure of this foreign policy. But we'll talk about kind of an interesting twist from what the original screenplay by Sorkin concluded with versus what they do in the movie. And it's one of those kind of Hollywood films that ends up kind of drowning a bit in its own attempt to be all things at the same time. It wants to be this hard-hitting critique, but then it also kind of includes these bizarrely jingoistic moments played for rah-rah effect on screen. There's a moment where some characters we've come to like and admire in an opportune moment yell out, let's go kill some, let's go kill some Russians. And it's, you know, it's not played sarcastically. It's not played sardonically, as you might expect from a Mike Nichols. It's, it's played pretty realistically, I think. And it's a great example of film that kind of seeks to both celebrate and uplift U.S. foreign policy from the muddle I mentioned of entrenched financial, corporate, political interests, but at the same time also is confronted in how it's doing those things with the messy realities about how countries act and how they present themselves to the world and all the dirty geopolitical realities that most of us would really not rather know or even think about. Things like killing in the name of democracy or funding wars, but not those hearts and minds I mentioned. So there's actually a book I'd be curious to read. I I came across it when I was uh, checking out a little bit of the criticism and praise that the film uh, had obtained at the time it came out. There's an interesting book I want to read. I actually bought it. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. It's by um, a guy named Matthew Alford. It's called Real Power, Hollywood Cinema and American Supremacy. And as I gather it, this is a book that uh, argues uh that many very kind of left-feeling films, a few examples that are cited in the book, Hotel Rwanda, 13 Days, Three Kings, Black Hawk Down, and even films kind of like, like Terminator Salvation and Transformers are actually influenced by the power of the government and, and business. And, uh, it sounds kind of wacky and kooky. It, it's it's probably it, it could be one of those books where you read it and you're kind of like, wow, this exactly explains some things that go on in Hollywood that no one really wants to talk about. Um, it's essentially saying that uh, that Hollywood requires the involvement of uh, the Pentagon or the government at times overtly, but sometimes not so overtly when they're making films that are going to be critical of what the U.S. does or doesn't do. And I guess it's interesting to think about how competing interests may subtly or not so subtly try to influence what we're seeing on screen. 
You know, a more recent example is Top Gun Maverick, which got a lot of criticism. I don't say a lot. It got internet criticism for being a jingoistic pro-American, pro, you know, military might and expertise film. Now, this is probably what this guy's talking about in this book in the sense that you can't make a film like that without the direct involvement and cooperation of the U.S. government and branches of the military. You need equipment, you need locations, you need expertise. And in doing so, it's very reasonable to assume that those entrenched interests have interests they are going to try to protect in how they influence what ends up on screen. Now, of course, Hollywood just wants you to sit in the movie theater and munch a lot of popcorn and buy soda and candy and have the movie make a billion dollars, which it did. And no one's going to Top Gun Maverick because they're expecting a nuanced dissection of U.S. military policy. We're going to see Tom Cruise zip around in kick-ass jets, but you can't have kick-ass jets without this military involvement. And it sounds like this book sort of uh, approaches that subject from an interesting angle. I'd like to read it, read into that a little bit more. Now, the screenplay, as I said, is by Aaron Sorkin. And as such, it's got very, it's got, you know, people talk about Sorkinisms. Well, here's, here's a few Sorkinisms for you. The screenplay for Charlie Wilson's War uh, is the kind of screenplay that thinks it's clever and hilarious to have a female character who is named only Jailbait in the screenplay. She's not a real person. She is a dress. Every female character in Sorkin's screenplay is either a brilliantly intelligent, liberated sex pot willing to jump into the sack with anyone, or the astonishingly competent but completely sexually neutered congressional assistant played by Amy Adams in a role she's both absolutely perfect for, great at, and completely better than as an actor. So granted, we're talking about Charlie Wilson, who is a, was a scamp and a rogue and a womanizer, a heavy drinker, so you could generously say, well, there's truth here, and that's what we're putting on screen. But it, it smacks a bit of a worldview that Sorkin himself may possess that he's putting forth. I don't know. Thankfully, somewhere along the way, Nichols or someone excised some of Sorkin's most egregious dialogue speaking to this particular issue. And again, I am getting to Philip Seymour Hoffman's scenes, but I just want to set a little I'm going to spend about just four more minutes talking about the film and setting it up so that how amazing Philip Seymour Hoffman is can stand a bit more to the front of how incredible it is that he's this amazing in a film that has this many problems. So for an example, there's a scene in the movie where Tom Hanks, as Charlie Wilson, is attending somewhat ludicrously a, a screening of a pro-Mujahideen documentary film that rich libertine Texan Julia Roberts, played somewhat ludicrously by Julia Roberts, in a series of totally ludicrous wigs, while accompanied, by the way, everywhere, bed, bath, and beyond, by two whippet dogs. I wish I was kidding. Anyway, in the movie, uh, in the movie, she and Charlie go to bed at her party, this party which she professes to be having, specifically to drum up important political support for the U.S., 
getting behind the resistance in Afghanistan. So, you know, her disappearing for an hour to hop in the sack with a congressman who's there with his assistant, played by Amy Adams, is, I guess, how they do things in Texas in the mind of Aaron Sorkin. But in the screenplay, there are a couple curious neutered moments for Sorkin. Uh, like there are these, there's a couple about to be sex scenes that are all interrupted and then don't take place. You may remember in the movie, Tom Hanks ends up back at his DC bachelor pad with a character played by Emily Blunt, another actor far above the material she's asked to interpret in this film, which somehow she did after being in The Devil Wears Prada. This is a pretty thankless role, like Amy Adams's role is a pretty thankless role. Anyway, they have this scene at his DC bachelor pad. She pads around, as women do, in his pajama top, wearing only her panties, smoking a joint, drinking whiskey, being sexually available to a doughy, middle-aged wastrel. Hmm, Aaron, are we peeping you behind the pages of this screenplay? But their coitus is interruptus because Julia Roberts is on the phone. And of course, the Charlie Wilson of the movie loves money and power more than he loves sex. And so that scene doesn't take place. Curiously, the screenplay has a similar uh, would-be sex scene between Charlie Wilson and Joanne, who's the character Julia Roberts is playing. But thankfully, in the movie, they didn't turn it into a sex scene, but clearly they have sex and then they appear in a bath together afterwards, post-coital. And thankfully, Julia Roberts never had to utter Sorkin's original dialogue on screen. I'm reading now from the original screenplay. Joanne, come here. Charlie takes a few steps towards Joanne and she meets him halfway. They're standing very close. And as she speaks, it almost seems like she's either going to kiss him or slide her hand down his pants. Joanne continued, I know you think of yourself as a drunk and a fuck up, but you're not. You have such greatness in you and you're needed now. I don't care how many women you sleep with. That's what great men do. And by the way, pick up the phone and I'll show up anywhere you say, wearing anything you like, and I'll fuck you till you black out. You should believe everything you've heard about me. Charlie moves away and lights a cigarette. Charlie, what is it exactly you want me to do? Joanne, go to Pakistan and meet with President Zia. So yeah, screenwriting, man. I mean, I can't do it myself, but I think I can recognize it when I see it or when I don't. Someone's greater mind prevailed. Anyway, this is the subject of the film. It's based on a book by George Kreil, who's a former 60 Minutes producer who did a lot of the best segments and the most hardest hitting investigative segments uh, over the years at 60 Minutes with Mike Wallace. And Tom Hanks bought the rights to this book and there's where we there's where we jump off. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the end. There's another kind of uh, another impressive screenplay moment at the end that didn't make it into the movie. But let's talk about what we're here to talk about, which is the great Philip Seymour Hoffman. You know, I was looking through his IMDb page, and today is the day that we just found out that the great Michael Gambon passed away. Dumbledore, of course, the first line in his obituary. We should all be so lucky. But Michael Gambon reminds me of the type of career that Philip Seymour Hoffman could have perhaps had, had he lived and not succumbed tragically 
to his drug addiction. You know, Michael Gambon could do everything and anything. He was a Shakespeare stage actor. He could do comedy. He could do villains, TV, movies, theater, everything. And Philip Seymour Hoffman was the same, right? I mean, probably, I don't even say probably, I would say definitely the greatest actor of his generation. An actor who could disappear into roles. You remember a few episodes back, we talked about, I think it was Harry Belafonte saying something about actors um, who either disappear into the role and you don't see the acting, you just experience the performance. And the actors who, although great, never allow you to forget that you're watching them be a great actor. Well, Philip Seymour Hoffman, to me, is very much the former. In all of his roles, he disappears so thoroughly into the role that you could be forgiven for forgetting there's a real person behind all of these incredible moments. And I think that this introductory scene with... uh with Philip Seymour Hoffman is one of the great character introductions in movies. He's got this incredible scene with uh, opposite John Slattery, who's playing his boss in the CIA. And <laughs> from the costuming, the physicality, uh, he looks exactly like the real Gust Avrocados, by the way. I'll, I'll, I'll have a picture up on Instagram the day this comes out. You can see uh, I'll put Gust, uh, Gust Avocados with, with Philip Seymour Hoffman's version of Gust with a T side by side. So he's doing something incredibly physical in his portrayal. But when you read about Gust Avocados, you realize that this is also a story of class in America, that he is the child of immigrants, that he came from nothing, that he is not a blue blood CIA type person. In fact, what he is is a extremely effective, extremely experienced, multi-decade experienced operative with street talents far beyond those of his pencil-pushing wasp boss as represented by John Slattery. This scene is just so magnificent. Let's take a little look here. Philip Seymour Hoffman as the first time you meet him as Gust Avrocados. Okay. I know it was difficult for you to come in here hat in hand. That's, That's not John the kind Slattery. Of upbringing, I guess is the word I'm looking for. It's not the kind of man you are. I understand that. I'm not looking to humiliate you or exact a price in any way, so why don't you just apologize? We'll call it water under the dam and we'll go about our business. Excuse me, what the fuck? What? What the fuck are you talking about? Claire George said you were coming in here to apologize. No, I I'm supposed to come in here so you could apologize to me. According to whom? Claire George. You told me to go fuck myself. I'm supposed to apologize to you? Also, water goes over a dam and under a bridge, you poncy schoolboy. Clearly, there's been a miscommunication between Claire George and somebody. Excuse me. Yes. Does this look all right? It's fine. Thank I you. I can sand it down a little. I, I don't know. No fucking idea who this yeah. guy is. He is here to fix the glass that you broke the last time you were here. Could you just excuse us? <laughs> so already, all of that stuff I just mentioned about the class warfare that's going on here within the CIA and within these two characters so brilliantly deployed. This is a part of the movie that is exact word for word what was in the screenplay. 
And again, Philip Seymour Hoffman, this is your first scene in the movie. I don't know when they filmed it in the chronology of making the film. But to be so fully representative of all that stuff going on inside Gust Avrakatos and yet be so funny. <laughs> like to pitch a scene like this, which is aggressively written, aggressively performed, it's two kind of men going toe to toe in a who's the alpha manner. Yet it's funny, but it's not shot funny. It's simply funny in the way that Philip Seymour Hoffman is somehow able to get across beneath the anger. I mean, you know, the episode I just did with Albert Brooks, it's kind of similar, right? There are scenes where I mentioned that Nick, the director, Nicholas Winding Rain, was so scared as a kid by the scenes where Brooks is screaming at Julie Haggerty because the anger is so real, so palpable. But Brooks also is able to find the humor, not necessarily verbally, although there are funny lines in that film, just like there are funny lines here. But that's, to me, the mark of just an incredible performer and actor is that Philip Seymour Hoffman is able to do all this stuff. Yes. Yes. Tell me to go fuck myself and I'm supposed to apologize. Yeah. You break my window. I'm supposed to the apologize. The Helsinki job was mine. The Helsinki job was not yours. If it was yours, you'd be in Helsinki. Alan Wolf stood in the Alan office. Alan Wolf is no longer yeah, the director. It was on the Alan books. Wolf is no longer the director of European operations. He does not make those appointments I do. Promises were made. Not by me. I've been with the company for 24 years. I was posted in Greece for 15. Papandreou wins that election if I don't help the junta take him prisoner. I've advised and armed the Hellenic army. I've neutralized champions of communism. I've spent the past three years learning Finnish, which should come in handy here in Virginia, and I'm never ever sick at sea. So I want to know why I'm not going to be your Helsinki station chief. Your course. Excuse me. For Helsinki, I need someone with diplomatic skills. You don't have them. Is that right? That is right, and I don't know why the hell I didn't fire you when you broke my fucking window. Oh, yes, sure you do, Cravely. Look, Gus. Yeah, you're fucking Roger's fiance, and you know I know. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not even gonna dignify <laughs> that with a response. Yeah, yeah, you're dignifying her in the ass at the Jefferson Hotel, room 1210. But let me ask you, the 3,000 agents Turner fired, was that because they lacked diplomatic skills as well? You're referring to Admiral Stansfield Turner? Yeah, the 3,000 agents teaching every goddamn one of them, first or second generation Americans, was that because they lacked the proper diplomatic skills? Or did Turner not think it was a good idea to have spies who could speak the same language as the people they're fucking spying on? <laughs> well, I'm sorry, but you can hardly blame the director for questioning the loyalty to America of people that are just barely Americans in the first place. Yeah, well, I'd like to take a moment to review the several ways in which you're a douchebag. Get the fuck out of my office. Yes, sir. Before I end your career, asshole. Yes, sir. Yeah, my friend, I'm gonna need you for a second. God damn it! My loyalty? For 24 years, people have been trying to kill me. People know how. Now, do you think that's because my dad was a Greek soda pop maker? Or do you think that's because I'm an American spy? Go fuck yourself, you fucking child. <sighs> Mic drop. Damn. It's just astounding. It's funny, but it's also so angry and filled with that class resentment. And I couldn't help notice that little Sorkin-ism. You're referring to General Admiral Stansfield Turner? Like the... <laughs> The uh, the heavy lifting sometimes that a screenplay has to do, I guess, in this moment to explain to the listener who the hell they're talking about as opposed to being the sort of screenplay that just presumes some intelligence that if the viewer doesn't know who they're talking about, they can go figure it out later. Uh, but wow, what an ending to a scene. Punctuated with uh, a little bit of a moment reminiscent of Michael Mann's 
the insider when uh, Pacino's producer character goes up to Mike Wallace after Wallace has been screaming and thundering at a moolah they're trying to interview, I think in Afghanistan. Uh, how, uh, you want to fuck around some more? You get your blood? No, I'm good. Like the idea that it's a performance and a show for people is acknowledged and uh, they do so here. What was I? He stops by his secretary's desk. How was I? She gives him a thumbs up and he pats her typewriter and walks out. That's a hell of an introduction to Gust Avrakados. It tells us everything we need to know. It's followed right away by uh, a lunch line scene, which is which is great because I like when actors have to do stuff, and he has to do a lot of stuff in this scene. There's a scene. woman, and I'll equip a Pennsylvania named Nietzsche. And she thinks she's a witch. Uh, she offered to put a curse on Cradley for me. Yeah. And she uh, she asked me, do I want a professional curse or a health curse? Because a health curse I can do right away, but a professional curse takes longer. Huh? But I'm living proof you right about that. It's an interestingly choreographed scene. They got to weave through a food line, and he's talking to a colleague here. I'm reading. And this is kind of how he ends up of phone conversations getting into German generals the Afghan situation. NATO headquarters, analyzing wiretaps at a Mercury Bay, New Zealand. You know, historically a hotbed of anti-American activity. Nobody will come near me. I'm in the weeds. And this is part of the agenda that the film has or the truth that the film is representing that, you know, America wants to do all of these things in the world, but we also shoot ourselves in the foot by neutering the secret services, neutering the intelligence community, firing people who don't fit the ethnic profile, I guess, as the screenplay asserts earlier. And there's not a moment where, where, Philip Seymour Hoffman is not completely um, just in full command of this character. And he next appears in this CIA screening of film related to the situation that's going on in Afghanistan. And this takes place after Hanks has kind of a, I can't believe this is the world we're living in moment where the Station chief uh, basically tells him on the ground in Afghanistan, no, we don't want the money and the guns. We don't. We just want this war to go on forever. There's a funny, funny little scene here with Philip Seymour Hoffman as they watch. Uh, he's now with three other guys, as he'll reference in the brilliant forthcoming scene where he meets Charlie Wilson for the first time. Yes, sir. This is another egregious Sorkin moment here. You know, the screenplay gives Hanks this weepy, that's why I became a congressman story about a dog and his fucking constituents. Oh, in my office at 10. He's so serious. And Assistant then Deputy Director or hire. Amy Adams. Tell me, if I don't see someone at 10, I'm going to start docking their allowance at a rate of $1 million a minute. She's also just basically his waitress. You get me another one then, would you? <clears throat> get me another whiskey. Yes. She looks at him lovingly. Yes, sir. This is so stupid. The AKs, RPG-7 grenade launchers, and 82-millimeter mortars are coming into Pakistan by air and sea, and then trucks take them to the Afghan border. And we take them across on mules, which are running a little more than we thought. The mules? They're yeah. 2,400 apiece, plus we got to get them checked out. For what? Diseases, foot and mouth. 
Plus, they have to have their ears cleaned. The mules are getting better health care than the Afghans. Plus, they're going to cost a little extra if we want them pre-trained. To do what? Walk over a mountain with ammunition on their back. Aren't they born with that instinct? I mean, isn't that, isn't that something they want to do naturally? You think Afghanistan might one day think about building some fucking roads? Dust. I love his line delivery there. I like bobbles in line deliveries of this sort. Diseases, foot and mouth. Listen Plus to this line delivery. The mules are getting better health care than the Afghans. Plus, they're going to cost a little extra if we want them pre-trained. Right here. To do what? Walk over a mountain with ammunition on their back. Aren't they born with that instinct? I mean, isn't that, isn't that something they want to do naturally? You think Afghanistan... Isn't that something they want to do naturally? I think that's what Might one day think about building some fucking roads. Dust. Yeah. I got something for you. Okay, so this is the moment where Gust's life is about to turn around, and then we're also introduced in this to this, what do they call him? Charlie's Angels. His office is staffed entirely, talking about Charlie Wilson's office, portrayed by Tom Hanks, is, is staffed entirely by beautiful women, known on the Hill, apparently, as Charlie's Angels, portrayed in the screenplay in a nod towards feminism, I suppose, as extremely competent and completely aware of their uh, beauty and sexual power. But it's trying to tread such a thin line here that, it, again, when you have a character whose only name is Jailbait, that gives you an indication of, I think, where it's kind of uh, falling. But this is just a brilliant tour de force scene between Hanks and Hoffman, who doesn't know the congressman, has never heard of him, doesn't even know why he's there. Welcome back. Who are you? Uh, this is Gus Avocados. He's come up from Langley to bring you the information that you wanted. Honor! Yes, sir? I said Assistant Deputy Director Ohio. I know, sir. No, I Assistant Deputies don't come to the Hill without a subpoena. I'm the guy you want to talk to, Congressman, on the Afghan desk. You're on the Afghan yeah. desk? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't be too proud of that. I just got back from there. No. I know, and that's a, that's a hell of a flight, too. The nine hours flying time against the jet stream, probably to stop in Brussels, plus the time difference. I'd be, I'd be a little grumpy myself. I ain't grumpy because of the plane. We, we wanted to give you this. Charlie, we know you like single malt. Yes, it It's called uh, Talisker, and it's mentioned in a Robert Louis Stevenson poem, The Scotsman's Return from Abroad, uh, The King of Drinks as I Conceive It, Talisker, Isla, or Glenlivet. This is so great because Gust is super effective at breaking the ice and finding common ground, which he does in this scene by having immediate command of the details of the crazy flight that Hanks had to take back from Afghanistan, the way he presents this guy who he knows to be basically an alcoholic, uh, the bottle of whiskey. He's a pro at the same game here. And this is how he starts to get climb over the fences of Charlie Wilson's reserve. Go again? Gust avocados. Sure. Have Bonnie come in on this meeting. Yes, sir. What's the gift for? It's from the Afghan desk for doubling the budget for the Mujahideen. Oh. Well, hey, yeah. That was nothing. Oh, it's a nice bottle of scotch. Must have been hard to get. No, doubling the budget was nothing. $10 million for covert ops against the Russian army is meaningless. What are you, an infant? Well, you hang on just one <laughs> second. I don't remember your name. Gus Avocados. Gus Avocados. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Hanks does a brilliant job delivering Gus Avocados. And if I call you Gus? Yeah, well, my name's Gus with a T, but I don't care. <laughs> but I don't care. 15 hours ago, Alfred Harold Holt, the keys to the safe, okay? 
I stood there in the office in Islamabad, and I said, how much do you need? And I was apparently annoying him. Well, Harold Holt's a massive tool, Congressman. He's a cake eater. He's a clown. He's a bad station chief. And I don't mean to cast aspersions on a guy, but he's going to get us all killed. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, how does he expect to defeat the Soviets in Afghanistan without a... He said a sudden influx yeah, of money. An influx and of money, new weaponry, draw attention. He's not trying to defeat the Soviets, Congressman. What the hell are you talking about? Now, this is this sort of uh, noises off theater of the absurd here where we're introduced to this kind of pretty meaningless C storyline where Charlie Wilson is the subject of an investigation by Rudy Giuliani into his tawdry personal life and possible use of drugs on on con congressional business. And it's ludicrous, but it works really effectively because Philip Seymour Hoffman as Gust has to come and go from the office multiple times, which he does with a reasonableness and aplomb that at first seems uncharacteristic of this character we are coming to like very, very much in this movie. Excuse me. I'm the congressman's aide, Bonnie Bach. Gusto Ricardos. Gus, I need the room for us. That's second. Amy Adams. Sure. Jailbait! This is the character known as Jailbait. Whoa, whoa, hey, hey, woke, all right. Just tell me what's happening. A Justice Department task force that was formed last year to investigate reports of sex between members of the House and their male interns has recently widened to include the use of recreational drugs by senators and congressmen. Do you know a man named Paul Brown? Doesn't have to answer that, keep going. Oh, shit. Paul Brown, under investigation by federal prosecutors for fraud, he wanted me to invest in some TV show for Crystal. Well, he's saying he witnessed you doing cocaine nine times in a fantasy suite in Las Vegas. Brian Ross at NBC is breaking the story. All right, guys. I was in Las Vegas with Crystal and Paul Brown because she wanted me to talk to him about this thing. There was cocaine. I want you to go in the other room and start on a statement. Let's get Stu on the phone. Okay, I'll call him. Okay, bait. You just need to start. All right, everybody. Okay, bait. It's going to be all Like, would one woman call another woman bait? Right, I want to get back to Gus. No problems. <clears throat> I should also mention that Seymour's physicality here includes a tie that doesn't cover his belly, which is so perfect. What do you mean he's not trying to defeat the Soviets? Well, he wants to bleed them. Pay back for Vietnam. Make it so they just have to keep sending troops in and keep sending money and troops and money until they just go out of their fucking minds the way we did. You mean to tell me that the U.S. strategy in Afghanistan is to have the Afghans keep walking into machine gun fire till the Russians run out of bullets? That's Harold Holt's strategy. It's not U.S. strategy. What is U.S. strategy? Well, strictly speaking, we don't have one, but we're working hard on that. Who's we? Me and three other guys. <laughs> me and three other guys. Again, he's so deep here in character. You, you can't tell where the actor ends and the character starts. Would you, excuse me? Oh. <clears throat> he, he, again, this is like Sorkin 101. All right, what do you have? Representative. So they just left for, what, two minutes, and now they come back in, and they have all of this information and a statement prepared, and it's it's silly. And if not for Philip Seymour Hoffman on the other side of this, it was, this scene would be as ludicrous as any number of hallway stalking lit from above scenes from the West Wing. Charles Wilson has learned he is joining several members of Congress who are under investigation by a Justice Department task force. It is investigating task force. It makes it sound like Elliot Ness is running the thing. Who is running the thing? Who's the prosecutor? Uh, Rudolph Giuliani, New York Southern District. You know him? 
No. And it's been going on forever. Mm. We should say that too. Representative Charles Wilson has learned he is joining several members of Congress who are under investigation by the Justice Department in what is now an 18-month-long, wide-ranging examination that has resulted in no convictions. Congressman Wilson has not been charged with any crime, nor has he been questioned by the authorities. He denies any allegation of illegal or improper behavior and will fully cooperate with the ongoing investigation. Okay. Why not Bastu? Yes, sir. This is so silly and stupid. Gus! But thankfully, here comes salvation. You and three other guys. Yeah. Well, I will tell you what I told Harold Holt. I can get the money. Now, the 10 million is a joke, fine. What do you need? To do what? To shoot down the helicopters. To shoot down the helicopters. We can help them shoot down the goddamn helicopters. Everything's gonna start going our way. There was a story about a, a Zen master and a little boy. Yeah. The Zen Master story will be coming back in. I'm going to just skip over the next ludicrous part of the uh, investigation thing. But when Gust comes back in, this is a great Philip Seymour Hoffman moment here. Gust! Yeah, um, the Swiss make an anti-aircraft gun called the Arlecon. Listen, Charlie. 20 millimeter cannon, high rate of fire. Uh, I know the Arlecon. Don't forget the limo driver. What do you mean? Oh, you took a... Uh limo from the casino or the airport maybe it's easy enough to track down a limo driver and a subpoena ask him if anything was going on in the back seat so you know in terms of cleaning up this were you listening at the door i wasn't listening at the door were you standing at the goddamn door no. listening to me how could you even that's a thick door you stood there and you listened to me I wouldn't stand at the door don't be an idiot i bugged the scotch bottle what <laughs> now, it's got a little transmitter on i got a little thing in my ear get past it get past don't it leave this who the fuck? Who the fuck are you? It's not in my ear right now. Take it easy. I was going to tell you about it, but I'd leave the room for a second because you were getting indicted. Oh, you're gonna... <laughs> you had to leave, leave the room for a second because you were getting indicted. Is there a camera in here? Uh, it's a little paranoid. That's right. Will you take the bug off my scotch bottle now? Sure. <laughs> I saw two kids had their hands blown off when they tried to pick up something shiny. Sometimes the kids think those bombs are toys. For children to pick up. Yeah. They're raping the women. Yeah. Bayonetting the pregnant ones. That's as bad as it can be. But they still want to go out and fight the Red Army. Each and every one of them. I've never seen anything like that. No, me neither. He's clearly never seen Godfather 2 when Michael observes the rebels blowing themselves up with a hand grenade in order to uh, fight the oppressive regime. Let's be clear. I want to kill Russians as much as you do. Is the Arlecon the right gun? Is that what they should have? No, you know what? You've had a long flight. You're under a lot of stress. You're under arrest. Oh, you're under arrest. Do you drink? Oh, God, yeah. Well, should we try? This scotch is going to release sarin gas when I open it. Well, I don't think so, but open it over there. I also love Seymour's delivery of the line, Oh, God, yes. <laughs> Do you drink? Oh, God, yes. There's a great line here. How did a guy like you get into the agency? What, you mean a street guy? You ain't James Bond. You ain't Thomas Jefferson, so let's call it even. <laughs> Deal. Since there's no other reason I should be here, let's assume it's because I'm very good at this. This movie comes fully alive when these two people are on screen together. It only comes fully alive when these two people are on screen together. And that's really the genius of the Philip Seymour Hoffman performance. 
His next scene is in sure. the park. A weapons guy named Mike Vickers. When they I'll go meet this yeah. weapons guy. Now. Who's playing chess against four people in a park. Right, here's a test. You see the nerdy looking kid in the white shirt playing against the four guys at once? Yeah. Which one of the guys do you think is a strategic weapons expert with the CIA? That was a trick question, Charlie. It's a nerdy-looking kid in the white shirt. No reason this can't be fun, you know. Mike! (laughs) There's no reason this can't be fun, you know. Mike. I I like that Hanks is willing to be seen in this role as Charlie Wilson as politically astute, but frequently clueless to obviousness. It's a nice character trait he allows himself to be seen on screen. And this is a nice little bit of male egotistical posturing, which... You know, it's actually something Sorkin does very well is kind of this measuring up these scenes where men measure, take the measure of each other. Keep playing. Mike Vickers, this is Congressman Charles Wilson of the Defense Appropriations Subcommittee. How are you, sir? Fine. Thank you. How old are you? I'll be 30 next week. This is the CIA's weapons expert. One of them. Well, he's a most senior. Look. Mike, yeah, Bishop to Queen's Knight, seven. See, he's playing without even looking at the board. That's a useful skill. Do you have Afghanistan's ever invaded by Boris Spassky? Did my office not make it clear to Langley that I'm in no mood to be fucked around Charlie. with? You answer to me, you answer to Jim Baker. Which do you want? Right, the guy's a fucking Green Beret, Charlie. Are right, he trained with the SEALs? No one's trying to fuck with you. Mike, yeah, what was your move? Uh, knight to Queen's Bishop, five. All right, Queen to King's Rook, three. Guy on the right, you don't want to trade Queens with me. Shit. All right. I apologize. Okay. Everybody friends? As a former naval officer myself, Mike, I should have I should have known better. As a former naval officer, I'd have been surprised if you had. Oh, what the fuck? Hey. He said he was <laughs> hey. sorry. What can I do for you, sir? <clears throat> All right. So, you know, just a great little scene here. And 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 Gust playing matchmaker is is great. The next scene, time we've seen Gust is when we are in Jerusalem, where the great Ken Stott is playing Zvi, who is we a... We need you, Zvi. You're going to be our man inside the Israeli party. He's like an arms dealer. That's what's going to make you so effective. No one has your pull with the 10th Knesset. No one has your relationship with the Speaker. And we're going we're gonna to need your arm around Menachem when he finds out that we're working with Egypt and the Saudis. Tell him. Hmm? Tell him why we need him. I'm not saying anything. Why not? I don't know the fuck these two other guys are. <laughs> so Zvi has these two uh, bodyguards with him, and just in character, Gust is not going to tell him. Is, he's not going to speak tell in front him. of people why he doesn't know. I'm not saying anything. Why not? I don't know the fuck these two other guys are. Oh, are they bodyguards? Not ours. Zvi. Yeah. This is another measuring up scene where, you know, two of these people don't like each other. Zvi has taken an instant dislike to Gust and the interplay between them is is brilliant. I mean, some of them were trained by us. Gus, come on. That's a sense of humor. It's a bit of a, a quiet taste. Now, Zvi, look at me. This... You know, Gust isn't afraid to mix it up. He's got a steely-eyed demeanor, and when he needs to lay it on the line, he does. 
Tokyo 11 satellite photos. They've been degraded so I can uh, show them to you. And that's a five-wheel chassis tank. That's not the MK1, it's a T-55. And it and four others are about uh, 12 miles from here. What do you want tanks in mountains for? Oh, we don't. I just wanted you to know I know you got them. Thirty-five and a half million dollars? Which you'll be able to appropriate. Yeah. Without the press asking questions about it. You know, there's good news there, because the press is going to be busy asking him about a weekend in Vegas and his pending arrest on charges of narcotics possession. Oh, Gus. Shit. Charlie. It's nothing. Is this true? No, for our purposes, it doesn't really matter. Thank you. I'm just explaining to him that as long as the press sees sex and drugs beyond the left hand, you can park a battle carrier down the right hand, no one's gonna fucking notice. What the hell? It's not Jermaine. It's not Jermaine to these people who are fighting and <laughs> it's Gust. <laughs> it's so good. Uh also I love the character choice that Gust has these these two rings on his hands. Like these are part of the Greek heritage of the Gust. Avracados character. So when you watch the film again, note the glasses and the two gemstone rings that he's wearing, uh, which are fantastic. I got to stop down on this Julia Rob this ridiculous Julia Roberts scene because um, it's so ludicrous the way she. It, it's just it's not it's not a good performance. And the movie is so in love with the idea of her as a character um, and her her entrance is as literally like the woman. And what better way than through a slave girl auction? They're having a slave girl auction in her house. So sorry. For Nichols gives away. her like the most movie star entrance of all time with this blonde hair and these two whippet dogs that are with her. That's no problem, Joanna. This is Bonnie Bach. So nice to meet you. She doesn't even look at Bonnie. Well, she kisses Charlie. It's a pleasure meeting you, Mrs. Herring. This is a wonderful party. Why don't you give us a few more? He's enthralled. Anyway, we're not stopping down to talk about Julia Roberts in this film. I just wanted to give you a little bit of the, the vibe here. Now, let's see. What's another good gust scene here? How about when, <laughs> so they go to Pakistan, they meet with the chairman, there's this full scene where, um, I mean, honestly, at this point, this is kind of where Gust tends to drop out of the film. It's a little bit more than the halfway point. And that's kind of where I think the film loses a lot of its energy, unfortunately, because uh, he has some good scenes later on. He has a quick scene later on in the film uh, when things have concluded uh, in terms of the money that they want to give. And it has some of these kind of these silly scenes in films of the time, uh, which I actually just was last night watching. Uh, Shane Gillis has a comedy special. You may remember he was briefly on Saturday Night Live before previous comments on his podcast became an internet firestorm and he was forced to step down from a job he never fully had. Anyway, he does a bit in one of his comedy specials about uh, – 
you know, a typically subtle Shane Gillis bit, which kind of resembles this movie in a way, because on the surface of it, it can feel like a jingoistic right wing celebration of American military might. He's talking about identifying more with Al Qaeda than he does with his girlfriend's ex special forces boyfriend, because the tactical advantages and the expertise and the perfection of which the way these, these highly trained U S soldiers move to him is not as interesting as these soldiers who resemble him more in their lack of ability to do anything. And he talks about, you know, when they shoot something down, they seem surprised and excited. Well, that very scene happens in 2007, Charlie Wilson's war, where these Mujahideen now being armed with these rocket launchers, shoot down these Russian pilots in this kind of ludicrous scene. And they're just, they're surprised that they did it. It's just, it's a little insulting, isn't it? To the Mujahideen even. Uh, that they somehow inadvertently shoot down these helicopters and planes and they don't know how they did it. It's like, they're just, the actors are required to jump and cheer and and look amazed that they actually did something, which is kind of stupid, frankly. And then this scene, ludicrously, is cut to Amy Adams's legs and ass walking down a hallway. Why? I don't know. So her ponytail can swing back and forth as she, you know, approaches Charlie. Well, this is kind of like where the film's biggest congratulations for Charlie come in. She hands him a note. They finally shot down helicopters, which he celebrates by giving her a kiss in a professional setting. Okay. So, um, yeah, anyway, that's a diversion. There's no, there's no gust there. Um, there is a long scene, uh, at the end of the film where gust and Charlie, um, have this conversation on the balcony of a party that they're having to celebrate the Afghanistan war with the Soviet Union has, has ended, that the Soviets have given up. Well, I told you. Huh? Told me what? All we had to do, shoot down the helicopters. Listen, not for nothing, but... but do you know the story about the Zen master and the little boy? Oh, is this some from Nitsa, the Greek witch of Aqualippa, Pennsylvania? Yeah, as a matter of fact, it is. There's a little boy, and on his 14th birthday, he gets a horse. And everybody in the village says, how wonderful, the boy got a horse. And the Zen master says, we'll see. Two years later, the boy falls off the horse, breaks his leg, and everybody in the village says, how terrible. And the Zen master says, we'll see. Then a war breaks out, and all the young men have to go off and fight, except the boy can't because his leg's all messed up. And everybody in the village says, how wonderful. And the Zen master says, we'll see. So you get it. No. No, no, because no, I'm stupid. You're not stupid. You're just in Congress. 
Send them money. You can start with the roads, move on to the schools, factories. Now it's a party. Restock the sheep herds. Hey, give them jobs. I'm give trying. them hope. I'm trying. Yeah, we'll try I'm, harder. I'm fine for every dollar. Yeah, yeah. I took you from five million to a billion. I broke the ice on the sting in the Milan. I got a Democratic Congress in lockstep behind a Republican president. Oh, that's not good enough, because I'm going to hand you a code word classified NIE right now, and it's going to tell you that the crazies have started rolling into Kandahar like it's a fucking bathtub drain. Jesus, Gus, you could depress a bride on her wedding day. Hey. Listen to what I'm telling you. There's a lot of things going on in the scene not the least of which and not the most subtle of which is the sound of that plane flying overhead. And the reason for that is that the events as described in the film, Charlie Wilson's War, the film doesn't have time to get into the aftermath. The film is about Charlie Wilson's role in increasing the funding for a covert operation which allowed the Mujahideen to be supplied weapons which allowed them to defeat the Russians. The film doesn't have the time to get into what happened after that, which in an extremely boiled down version that they're trying to cover in this scene is essentially in the vacuum created by that military support uh, crazies flooded in to take control of Afghanistan. And among those crazies is Osama bin Laden. And that's part of this story. And that's part of American foreign policy going back however, however long you care to examine it. So Gust is the conscience of the film at this point. He's the one who's saying, yeah, that was great, but it's not enough. We now need to build schools and bridges and roads, and we need to do the rest of the job. Part of the heartbroken brilliance of Philip Seymour Hoffman, even in a fairly light film like this, is that he embodies that, that awareness and that concern that it's not going to happen. It reminds me of another film I just watched in preparing for this, which is A Most Wanted Man, which is the photographer Anton Corbin's film version of John Le Carre's novel. It's also not a great film. It contains a glimpse of the heartbroken, um, the heartbroken confidence, the, the, the willingness to always believe that this time a country or a secret service will do the right thing only to have the brutal cold realities smack the character in the face and in Philip Seymour Hoffman's very good performance as a German secret service operative in um, post 9-11 Hamburg, he does contain some of that hangdog emotionality of the best Le Carre protagonists, but the film's screenplay is just not unfortunately able to adequately capture what a novel can capture of the inner torment of these types of characters, a classic Le Carre protagonist, such as the one portrayed by Philip Seymour Hoffman in that film, is someone whose inner life is known to us, the reader, through either flashbacks or scenes in which the character is present, but they're not talkative people in that regard. 
they're not speechifiers. And so in a way, Philip Seymour Hoffman is brilliant casting because by simply appearing in his last film, I believe it was his last film, by simply appearing in his rumpled, cigarette-smoking, boozed-out-looking, bloated self, he embodies many of those qualities, those world-weary qualities. Um, he embodies, he has less of the heart in that film than he has in this scene here. One could speculate, you know, I don't know where he was in his personal battle with his addictions, but perhaps uh, he became more cut off from the ability to access some of the things he was able to access here in 2006, 2007, Charlie Wilson's work, don't know. But in this scene, he is representing the whole unspoken part of the story, uh, which is uh, which is that this also inadvertently led to the rise of bin Laden. Now, it's kind of amazing how Sorkin does this in an epilogue in the screenplay. Um, so the screenplay ends with this scene we just saw without the brilliant kind of uh, speech that uh, that that uh, Gust gives here. There's a lot more exposition here, um, which the Gust character does in the party scene than they than they did in this one. And in the the scene as written in the screenplay, he'll say things like. Uh, Charlie is arguing that they did good. Charlie says, Charlie, I'm saying the character Charlie, the deadliest, most tyrannical force in the world is leaving. I'd say it was a good day's work and turn off the lights on the way out. Gust replies, well, I'd be happy to turn off the lights, but there's no electricity in Afghanistan or roads or schools. You know why that's a problem? Because at this moment, over half the population of Afghanistan is under 14 years old. And they're going to come home from the camps and they're going to find that their villages have been napalmed and their fathers are dead. Charlie says, you want a Marshall Plan for Afghanistan? A covert war to teach him how to read and write? Gust, yes, yes I do. In fact, I think we should have said, sure, we'll give you the guns, but first you have to build some schools. Let's see, let's see your 14-year-old boys pass general knowledge tests in history and science. When they pass them, we'll give you the bullets. So anyway, he goes on to this whole thing. Um, and then this extraordinary epilogue happens, which... I can't tell if this would have been batshit crazy to put on the screen or not. Now, here's how it starts. Uh, epilogue, interior Charlie's apartment morning. A few years have gone by, and that's evident from Charlie's salt and pepper hair as he makes coffee. We might also notice that he's wearing a wedding ring. He's dressed for work and talks to his wife who's getting dressed in the bedroom. Charlie, it was good. Mrs. Wilson, did you speak? Charlie, no, I just sat and listened. Mrs. Wilson, that's okay. Charlie, I might get up and speak next time. Mrs. Wilson, a beauty, appears in the doorway, slipping on her heels. You don't have to. You can do whatever you want, Charlie. What's in the paper? Charlie, well, Time Warner's proposing to merge its cable operations with AT&T. Presidents in Florida and Gary Condon didn't win a lot of new fans with Connie Chung, and the Redskins still suck. Let me ask you this. Do I seem as funny to you sober as I was before? 
Mrs. Wilson. Oh, baby, you're married now. Nothing's ever going to seem funny to you ever again. Now, in addition to maybe some of Sorkin's bitterness regarding marriage and divorce, don't know. Here we have the information that Charlie, the hard-drinking reprobate that we've seen in the whole entirety of the film that's just concluded, is now sober. This is true to real life, apparently. Charlie got remarried later in life. He did sober up and I think was taken out by a form of cancer. But it's interesting to see this used in the screenplay. And now here's the important part. Charlie laughs, Mrs. Wilson says. What else? Charlie starts to say, well, there's a story about boom. We hear a teeth-jarring explosion from the distance. It actually shakes the apartment. Charlie jumps when he hears the sound and smashes a glass coffee pot. Charlie, shit, Mrs. Wilson. What the hell was that? Charlie, are you all right? Did, did I get any glass? Mrs. Wilson, no, what the hell was that? Charlie, it may have been a gas line. I want to check across the hall and Mrs. Mrs. Wilson says yes. Charlie heads to the door as Mrs. Wilson goes to the terrace and opens the door. Charlie only gets a couple of steps out into the hall before he hears his wife call off screen. Charlie, Charlie comes back in. Exterior terrace continuous. He sees it before we do in the distance, a huge, thick, rising cloud of orange black smoke. Mrs. Wilson, Charlie, the Pentagon's on fire. Something's on fire at the Pentagon. The phone starts to ring. Charlie, evenly. It was a bomb. Mrs. Wilson, what the hell is going on? She picks up the phone. Hello? Yes? All right. Stay on the phone, please, to Charlie. It's Gust. He says to turn on the TV. Blackout. Roll the main titles. That's how, that's how the screenplay ends, which pulls no punches based on the scene that came before it with Gust and Charlie on the balcony celebrating this great victory. It pulls no punches that says, basically, once again, the U.S. didn't get the job completed. Can you imagine seeing Charlie Wilson's war in 2007 in a cinema and having it end with the 9-11 attacks? Do you think filmgoers would have embraced that, that, that brutal truth? Instead, it's a little bit more subtly presented, I suppose, in the final film. And perhaps that's understandable. But... What makes this film worth watching all these years later is the incredible performance that Philip Seymour Hoffman gives, which allows him to utilize all of these skills that usually in his other roles, he only ever kind of gets to use one of. So either he's funny in Boogie Nights or Nobody's Fool or uh, The Big Lebowski, or he's deadly serious like in The Master um, or... What's the film I just mentioned? Can't even remember. You're not dumb. You're just in Congress. You're not dumb. You're just a podcaster. Same thing applies. Anyway, what an incredible actor. And this is a good film to watch for him. Again, the surrounding stuff is a bit muddled, a bit confused. But I wanted to do this brief episode just to appreciate Philip Seymour Hoffman and Charlie Wilson's War. It's not comprehensive, but I think there's enough here to whet your appetite to watch this fantastic film again. I hope you get the chance, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Full Casting Crew Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>